What's completely allowing my mathematical skills to utterly atrophy? My name is Jeff, my co-host is Abdo, and this is MedTech Talks, a series on how it's med. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Schwartz, a nephrologist, medical lead of a large home dialysis program, and the ex-CEO of QXMD. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. No worries at all. Um, out, out of 10, how was that intro? And that was pretty fantastic. That's, that's right up there. He's being polite there. Uh, <laughs> so the, the, the starting point that we always start at is, um, I, I guess, how did you, how did you get involved or I guess, why were you interested in medicine at the beginning, Dan? You know, it's, uh, probably not a particularly unique story. I was very interested in science and, uh, quickly discovered I wasn't cut out for the lab. Uh, and really, uh, enjoyed the helping professions. And so it was just such a great combination of things, you know, applied science and doing work. I believe in. Mm -hmm. And I, like we chatted a little bit off the air before, but you, you ended up doing a, a mix of biochem and comp sci, was it? Well, I, I was really just in biochemistry, but I did one or two computer science classes, which kind of blew my mind and, you know, opened me up to this world of software. Uh, so I never really became capable at computer science, but I, I knew enough to be dangerous. N knew enough to be dangerous. Okay. That's, that's an, that's an interesting statement, uh, to, to frame your entire story. When were you dangerous? Like what was the, the whole, uh, digital ecosystem? Like, could you. Could you frame for us like what the tools yeah. you were using back in the medical so, context back then? What wasn't using much when I was uh, a medical student for context uh, at the University of British Columbia, Medscape was very new, and I remember um, trying to log into Medscape from one of the computers at the hospital, and my internet access was blocked. This is you know quite a long time ago, and when I contacted the powers of be, they didn't understand that medical students might want to use the internet to get medical information. They thought I was told, we think we just surf the internet all night. I said, no, I actually want to use real resources. So at the beginning, there was really a lot of reticence to use technology. Even going back further, when I did my undergraduate degree at Hill University, I joined a group, a volunteer group where we were trying to basically generate funding and distribution of computers around campus that were not in your home, but available for actually people. This was surprisingly innovative at the time to put computers on campus. Um, and then we tried to get course materials put online and we were, um, not very welcomed. Um, professors thought it would lead to cheating. It would degrade, uh, the academic experience. And we only had a very small number of academic partners at the time. So, you know, I went through a phase where there just wasn't that much available or that much acceptance of the use of digital technologies. When I even finished my residency, I was still literally using a Palm pilot. I kid you not to store so much of my, you know, go-to medical information. And I moved to Sunnybrook hospital in Toronto on my first job on staff at the university of Toronto. And, uh, sort of, it was a standard issue Blackberry at the time. So I had to give up my Palm pilot and carry around this Blackberry as my phone and I had no medical software. So the very first piece of medical software I ever, uh, worked on was, um, custom software for BlackBerry devices. 
I'm not sure where to go from here. You've given us so much to, to talk about. Like I, I'm, I'm personally interested in what you think of people doing comp sci and then going into medicine. Do you think that's a need? Oh, a absolutely. I think that so often students go down a very traditional path. You know, they do some sort of biological science, then they apply to medicine, which is a great way to get good MCAT scores. It's a great way to maybe understand if you like science or not. But now that I'm out in practice, you realize that people with more diverse skill sets truly can have better careers and more impactful careers, I think. Um, you know, I did do a very traditional route, but I think I, you know, explored things out of curiosity, but it was hard. It was an uphill battle. I think that, um, there are so many things that other disciplines can bring to medicine. Uh, and, and here's the reality, the content of medicine, you get through it regardless, whether you did an undergraduate degree in immunology or not, you don't have to be an immunologist to practice medicine. I mean, the truth is we are more like tradespeople than we are like scientists. Um, but other disciplines, data science, uh, computer science, uh, philosophy, uh, medical ethics, um, uh, logistics, uh, there's so many other disciplines, which I think are really, really important. Um, and the people I see doing interesting things are often those who either start out in other fields or have taken the leap and spent some time away from medicine to, to learn those other skill sets. So, so then why don't more people have those diverse skill sets? Because to me, as an outsider looking at it, it seems like medicine has a very, I don't know about that, but it just has a very structured approach as to what kind of student they want. Yeah. I, I think part of it is, is that, is that getting into medicine isn't easy. And I, I understand. I mean, I felt it similarly. You want to do what you need to do to have your best shot of quote unquote, getting it. Um, and I think to be fair, it may be that many people like myself start out in the sciences and only discover because of that, that they want to pursue medicine. I think it's probably more challenging for someone, you know, doing a business degree or doing a computer science degree to sort of figure out, Hey, I wouldn't mind doing something in the health sciences. Um, but I, I do think that people who are very committed to a path that includes medicine probably are not in a great position to take that sort of leap of faith or risk of exploring something else early, even though later it may prove very valuable. You're, you're giving me serious FOMO here. I wish that I did more before medicine now, but I just went the, the, the straight line route. So you're, you're making me consider even more years of school. Thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but speaking of more school, so you went to med school and then you ended up doing a residency in internal medicine and then focused on nephrology. I guess, were there, like, were there any reasons in particular behind this choice, um, or did any experiences during this journey into nephrology shape what you've done outside of the traditional clinical medicine route? You know, it's interesting. It was a different time then and doing things in technology is so easy now. It really wasn't then. And, um, I quite honestly had my head down. Uh, I did my residency. I worked very hard. I think becoming a good internist and then later a nephrologist, I did very, very little 
aside from clinical work during that entire time. And you know, obviously I have huge regrets about that. I, I wish I'd had mentors or an ecosystem, which really encouraged us to do different things. I think there was a lot of encouragement to do clinical research, medical education, and I certainly got very involved in medical education, not research. Um, but there really wasn't, at least where I was at the time, that ecosystem. I think that's thankfully changing. Although it's still not easy. It's still not easy to, you know, um, invest in other skill sets and invest in other projects that maybe even today, um, less typical. I mean, speaking of not getting involved in research, isn't that a little ironic because the, the company that you founded QX or co-founded QXMD, um, was used by quite a few researchers. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think from my perspective, I knew that I wasn't a researcher, but I'm a huge believer and a practitioner of evidence-based medicine. I love to digest new research. And one of my biggest, you know, pet peeves about the medical world is, you know, this whole issue of the challenges of knowledge translation. How do we take good research and apply it? And so my real passion for medical education, and I think for achieving clinical excellence is taking the work of good scientists and researchers, which is not where I would put myself, but actually using it. And I think that really founding QXMD was really driven by that desire to take the work that other people do or have done and making it accessible to regular Joe uh, docs like me. Um, Cause that is still today an unmet, an unmet challenge. Back to me. Okay. So how was QXMD founded? What's the story behind it? Uh, you know, it is interesting. Um, at the time, uh, you know, there was never really an intent to build a company per se. Um, it was, uh, to some degree driven by the fact that I had this Blackberry in my pocket, uh, which was sort of my phone and, you know, I guess it was a smartphone at the time, uh, but it, I had lost all of my, um, all of my useful notes and little bits of software that I had in my Palm Pilot. And so my co-founder and I decided we would just sort of build some stuff, um, and see how it went. Um, one of the, one of the first things we actually built was an educational, um, app, um, uh, that taught people how to read EKGs. Um, and, um, you know, that, that was interesting, but we also, um, what I, what I really wanted was a, uh, an app that was very selfish. It was for nephrology. It was a nephrology calculator calculating things like, you know, the fractional excretion of urea or, you know, um, things I couldn't do in my head and maybe I couldn't remember or predictive models. And so we, the first app we built, as I recall, was called NephCalc. Uh, it was a pure nephrology calculator. And at the time there were no app stores, you have to remember. So we built a website, um, the website, by the way, was initially called Berry Med because it was uh, medical what? software for Blackberry. Yeah. Oh, but then I got, oh. a, I knew that I knew the folks at Blackberry and they called me up and they were very nice. Like, Daniel, listen, you're, you're going to have to change the name of your company. Otherwise we're going to, we're going to sue you for, you know, uh, infringing <laughs> on our, on our, on our trade name. Uh, so we, we, uh, I went online at the time you could still get four letter domain names. So, uh, we spent a lot of time trying to find a great domain and QXMD really resonated. MD part, obviously being, um, 
you know, the, the health and physician service that we do. But the QX was really driven um, by a desire to address the queries or the questions that clinicians ask. And as you may know, in medicine, we're, we're very quick, quick to take long words and make short forms that involve one letter plus a Q or plus an X, sorry. I'm, I'm so a nephrectomy is an NX, a hysterectomy oh is an HX, uh. a history is an HX, <laughs> a trans a a is a TX. So QX <laughs> was, was question or query, MD. And, um, uh, we built, um, a nephrology tool. And then somebody asked me if I'd build one for cardiology. I said, sure. So we built CardioCal. And someone asked me if I'd do one for hematology. So we built HemeCalc and then GI Calc and et cetera, et cetera. And then we realized as we started spreading to the newly developed um, app store for iPhone, which was, you know, a big change, managing like 20 different apps was just, just impossible. So we consolidated all of our clinical decision support apps into one app, one app called Calculate. Um, and so that was really the first thing we built that really resonated and had a, a big impact. Um, we saw, you know, pretty, pretty significant amount of engagement very early on. So we, we knew we'd struck a chord and that we were building stuff that people needed, um, which was, which was encouraging. So then how did it turn into a company? Uh, you know, so it's funny, um, again, at the time we were really just working with researchers, taking their research and trying to digitize it. Um, we didn't have a business model per se. Um, we just were pursuing this desire to help get good research out to frontline clinicians, but then the bills started piling up, you know, we, uh, we had to pay for, you know, uh, uh again, Amazon web services, which we ended up using, um, a lot, um, didn't really exist. So we had to host our own server. So our first server was a Mac mini that sat in my office and <laughs> hooked up to the internet with a backup power supply. So it didn't go down MVP. Um, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, thing is this cost money. We had to hire some help. We had to hire a programmer to help with some stuff. And I said, oh, we need some, we need some, some cash to pay our bills. So we sort of figured out different ways of commercializing. We built one app, which we sold. Uh, we quickly realized that selling apps wasn't really the business model we wanted to pursue. Um, although we made a lot of money in the early days doing that because there just was no competition. Um, we also saw that we were serving a very tiny portion of the medical community and that the difference between a $5 app and a free app, um, was phenomenal in terms of reach. And I think that part of the ethos of the company is that first and foremost, we really wanted to serve a global medical community and you know, well, you know, $5 may not be a huge sum for a good piece of software. It made it, um, really impractical to deliver software at a global scale. So we decided that although it, it was great for bootstrapping and it paid a lot of upfront bills, it wasn't a good model. Um, and then we found, um, along the way, um, partners, um, with the, and they were very limited partnerships and their goal was, Hey, this is the, this is the budget we ha we need to get covered. So we'll, we'll do a program that covered that budget. And, um, over time we found more and more partners who wanted to work with us. That's, that's really interesting. So you basically commercialized out of need to cover the expenses that you had, but another way that, I, I mean, I, I perceive, I may be wrong, that could have been done was by pursuing partnerships with healthcare authorities and grants that are given by like existing systems that fund research. So why not go the grant route and why go the commercialization route? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a good question. You know, in the end, we, we did do a hybrid system. So as we got more established and this channel for knowledge translation became more accepted, um, we would absolutely go to researchers and we would partner with our grant applications. So we, in fact, the researchers liked working with us because we would be able to write a letter of support and show the granting agencies that if they partnered with QXMD or they, and they gave this grant, um, they would have a knowledge translation strategy built in. But again, this was early days. There were no granting agencies that were super interested in knowledge translation at the time. That's now changed. But even if they were interested in knowledge translation, they certainly didn't want to give money uh, to put research on an app. It was just too novel. Um, it wasn't on their radar. And so it just wasn't a viable strategy at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. It's also a slow I mean, process. You know, even today, when there is a co-submission for a grant, um, you're talking about from conception to cash flow, uh, 18 months, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. And time is life when it comes to startup, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, apart from that, it seems like the funding part was a, a journey that you had to navigate, but what was the hardest part of building QXMD out in this space? that didn't have that much infrastructure to begin with? You know, I think, um, the, some of the challenges were really, um, uh, probably device adoption initially. Uh, and now, you know, these smartphones are pretty ubiquitous, but early days, not everyone had all these devices. Mm -hmm. Um, the other challenges was fragmentation. So we had, you know, probably naively fragmented our own software which made it logistically just so hard to manage. You know, we didn't Different have apps. this conception. Yeah. I mean, now when you build an app, there's so many things you just take for granted, you know, try to build once or, or maybe twice for Android and, and iOS and you're set. And in terms of user management, database management, it's just, it's all there for you. I mean, even like mm -hmm. push notifications, you don't have to build your own push notification system. You just use a commercial service, but there was no infrastructure. And so I think we made big mistakes in terms of our user management uh, initially, uh, which we had to rectify, but we also built too many individual pieces of software, not realizing that people want a Swiss army knife, not a ton of different tools. So eventually we kind of figured out, we consolidated our software. Um, we, uh, did a much better job with of managing our user base, uh, because I think that you know, although we spend a lot of time thinking about our software for our users, there's just one more thing in their life. But having that ability to uh, personalize and stay connected, even through email or push notification is just very, very important. Honestly, I, I have to agree with you. Microservices made making apps a lot easier today than ever. So much easier. Yeah. But well, I can tell you, back to when we first started with push notification, there were no services that did that. We built our own push notification service. I kid you not. I mean, if we were really smart, we would have shut down QXMD and just commercialized the push notification service we built because it was really good. <laughs> um, but, uh, there are just so many things you had to build back then that didn't exist. And now you can go from concept to a fully pledged, you know, solution with a small team and not a lot of time. Hmm. I believe you. I've done it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. To go back to you though, uh, if you could go back in time and do things differently, what, how, how would it be different? 
I think, you know, we didn't really have uh, a vision of scale back then. I think we also didn't appreciate the value of partnerships. Um, and, I, you know, I'll give you an example. So we ended up building a solution called Read, which was really what I wanted to build even before Calculate. Read is um, a solution that I had dreamed about since I was a chemistry student. Um, I had always wanted somebody to take all the journals that I wanted to read and just rip out all the pages that I cared about, staple them together and mail them to me. That I didn't want, you know, back then going to the stacks, like there was no, you know, digital, you know, uh, papers were not easy to come by. I would spend, I, and it sounds pretty pathetic, but my Saturday nights wandering through the basement of the library at UT, pulling the papers I needed for a presentation I was giving. It was brutal. And I just wanted somebody, again, I didn't even have the vision of doing it digitally just to physically like, you know, sit in a warehouse, rip out all the pages I needed and, and mail them to me in a, in a, in a, in a binder. Um, and so when the iPad came out, uh, like the light bulb went off and I said, now is the time we're going to create a digital medical journal, which is going to basically consolidate all the papers you care about, um, uh, into one digital experience. Um, very similar to kind of the, the flipboard, um, type idea, you know, consolidate news that you care about at the time, obviously it was, it was pretty innovative. I don't, I don't think it's very innovative anymore. Um, but one of the challenges we had was partnership with it, with universities and hospital libraries and partnerships mm -hmm. with publishers. And we really took the approach that rather than, uh, ask for permission, we'd ask for forgiveness. And we decided, um, that instead of, you know, the really hard work of trying to build relations with every university on the planet or every publisher on the planet. Um, we would do some creative engineering to try to integrate everything without breaking any copyright and without breaking, uh, any legalities. And I think we achieved it, uh, quite honestly. Um, so for example, you know, when you go to a medical library online and you want to read a paper, the publishers require that that institution authenticates you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you, so, you know, it used to be, you'd have a proxy server that you'd put in your credentials. Now they have a, you know, different user interfaces uh, and a lot of them have moved to uh, two-factor authentication, but back then it was pretty much, you have a library card, you need to at least type in your username and password. Um, but for an app, there was no way to do that. And so our engineering team, um, you know, pretty brilliant group we worked with, were able to kind of figure out how to emulate that experience. So the app could essentially go to the library's own website and log in. So we use a lot of really smart engineering to make it work. In retrospect though, if I'd done it differently, I probably would have built more relationships. I probably would have gone to more universities and tried to say, Hey, let's do this together. Um, or even with publishers, you know, publishers have benefited a lot from our products because we actually had automated recommendation engines for the librarian saying, Hey, you have a lot of people trying to read this journal, but you guys don't have a subscription. You should think about subscribing. So there were a lot of benefits to potential partners. And I think we took the approach. We're going to go at it alone. Now it allowed us to um, have speed. Um, it avoided the risk of the no. Right. Um, yeah. and in fact, now QXMD has formal relationships with, oh gosh, thousands of institutions around the world, but. Um, many of them took time, you know, many of them took a lot of time to build a lot of trust real type of time, but you know, there are universities 
where they didn't build a formal relationship with us until we had thousands of, of, of users at their institution already, already using our app and using content through their, through their proxy service. So I, you know, I don't know that early relationships would have solved everything, but I, I wish I had tried harder earlier on. Honestly, just hearing you talk, I, I, I can't help but think, wow, you guys really were ahead of your time when it comes to the engineering and tech. Like you guys did a really good job just by the way you're describing it. You know, it's funny. I, I can't really speak to the code because again, I'm not a programmer. They, the, the team let me mm -hmm. do the website because I like to fiddle with the website and eventually they took that away from me too. Uh, cause I'm <laughs> quite, quite, quite incompetent as a programmer. Um, but I, I did, I did learn a little PHP for our, our first, uh, our first iteration of our website. Um, but, uh, although I can't speak to the code, what I can say is that, you know, I think we identified the problems we had to solve and, you know, we got, um, either lucky or smart by finding really good people who could solve, which at the time were some reasonably tough engineering problems. Now they're probably less tough, but at the time they were not trivial. And I think one of the things that really saw us through was not accepting the common parlance though, that can't be done. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, this won't work. Um, we just took the approach. There's gotta be a solution, whether it was a technical solution, a legal solution, a user interface solution, we're just gonna figure it out. So we believed it was there. And I would say most of the time we found it. And that's honestly, I think what is still a lesson I take away from that experience that whatever problem you're trying to solve, it probably is solvable. Um, and don't let other people tell you, you can't do it. Yeah. I love that. I want to ask you though, how is working with engineers different from working with doctors? Oh, it's so different. <laughs> um, I, I definitely prefer working with engineers. Uh, I mean, engineers are very smart. Um, they're very process driven. They're very logical. Um, they're generally quite dedicated and I guess doctors share a lot of those attributes, a lot of passion, a lot of dedication, but it's different. I think doctors are more like artists. They have a bit, they're a bit more ego driven. Um, they kind of know what they want to do. They're more independent. They're more individual. Um, it's hard to get doctors to align on a process or even a goal. Um, you know, if you have six doctors in a room, you'll probably get seven opinions. And with engineers, I, um, you know, engineers are, you know, just phenomenal to work with because, uh, for the most part, um, good engineers will blow you away and find solutions. You didn't even necessarily know you were looking for. So it's, uh, been a true joy. And I think part of it is I just got lucky that I found really great people to work with from my co-founder to our early hires to really pretty much every engineer we ever worked with. Um, it was just, a um, remarkable experiences. So, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about what led to your success as well as the challenges that you faced in building QXMD. But uh, in off the air, when we had chatted initially, you said that your previous work as a semi-professional magician contributed to your attitude in building QXMD. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, I started out uh, as a semi-professional magician uh, at the age of, I want to say 13. 
That's what um, Yeah, I got my first job uh, doing a magic show that my elementary school principal recommended me for to one of the parents at the school. And, you know, that was probably the start of my, my path in entrepreneurship. Um, and so throughout high school, that was, that was my part-time job. I didn't have normal jobs. I think I once worked at a, a retail shop cleaning the store, but, um, for the most part, I, did, I, I, I never really had a normal job. Um, so I was like an entertainer, uh, on nights and weekends. Um, but it really taught me a lot of things. One, um, taught me sales. It taught me to sell myself and to sell what I was offering. Taught me about pricing and that you know, pricing for value, not for time. Um, I mean, I can't remember what I charged, but gosh, I was in high school in what year is 1988 to 1993. And I charged, um, you know, what an entertainer would charge, not what the hourly rate of a 14 year old was, <laughs> you know? Um, so that was very important because it taught me a lot in the sales process going forward. I think in terms of problem solving though, is probably most impactful. What's, what's cool about magic particularly is everything a magician does is impossible. Like they're right. <laughs> like the card vanish. It's impossible. Uh, the rope change, change length. It's impossible. And so we know when you're building a business or trying to solve problems in the real world, when people tell me it's impossible, I'm like, well, I can make like myself float. I think I can solve that, you know? So it gives you a little bit of even overconfidence and, and trust me, not everything I tried work. I've, I've had more failures and successes, but I think it gives you the confidence to believe that there is a method to pretty much do anything. It may not come to you right away, but with enough work, perseverance, and creativity, you can kind of solve for anything. Um, and what's cool about magic, I mean, I've been doing magic for a long time. I kind of took a bit of a hiatus for probably 20 years and not that doing intensely. I've, my, my interest has since, I've had a resurgence of interest since my 11 year old son has gotten into it. Um, but what's cool is people still keep to, uh, to this day, finding solutions for what were previously deemed the impossible problems. And, uh, I think in entrepreneurship and in healthcare, we need to believe that more. We need to believe that we are not limited by what people believe to be our limitations. We're limited by our own self-imposed limitations. So we need to just keep pushing. We need to keep uh, pushing those boundaries. Okay. I've got a really serious question here. What's your favorite magic trick? My favorite magic trick is probably any card at any number. Uh, it's this plot and there's like a million ways to do it. Well, not a million, but there's many ways to do it, um, where someone in the audience gets to pick a card, so you maybe pick the ace of hearts and they get to pick a number, let's say 17 and there's a deck of cards you've been holding the whole time and you just start dealing cards and the 17th card is the ace of hearts. It's a, it's a, it's a great plot. It just seems magical. And, uh, what's great about it in the magic community is that everybody tries to find a new version of it. And I think some of the greatest magicians in the world have their own spin on it. Uh, but that's probably my favorite magic trick because it's so personal, uh, in that you just spotted this thing in your head and it seems like the closest thing to real magic. Uh, there's also other great magic. I mean, I also, you know, part of me, I'm still a child at heart and I still love some of the big illusions and, you know, an elephant appears and that kind of stuff. That's more just kind of, kind of. Cause it's fun. So, I mean, like 
you just to, to go back to your magic story, to, to dig a bit into that, you mentioned that you were taught some sales skills as well as a belief that anything can be fixed. But some of those opinions seemed juxtaposed quite strongly with the common, I guess, opinions that I've held in medicine. So how did you align those two contradicting worldviews if they were contradicting at all for you at all? Well, no, I think they are, they are very contradictory. I mean, I think the fact, um, you know, pushing boundaries, even me spending time in entrepreneurship is kind of almost heresy. <laughs> like, you know, there's lots of really cool people doing lots of cool entrepreneurship in healthcare. I think most people will probably look at me and think like crazy, like why, why did you waste your time doing these things? Um, and again, coming back to magic, I think like, you know, I'm this kid who's in like grade seven, grade eight, grade nine, like spending my free time, you know, making cards disappear. And, you know, but again, back then there was no YouTube. I didn't go on YouTube and learn tricks. I literally went to the library, found books and just read books and like taught myself these things. When VHS cassettes came out with magicians oh. teaching tricks, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'd like order a VHS and they would come and I would you know, learn a new trick that I couldn't read out of a book. But I think it's really about, um, recognizing that you have something you really care about and are interested in, you can't pursue that. And I think medicine has historically really accepted that if you want to pursue research, we're going to support that. Probably in the last 15 years, people who want to pursue education has become very accepted. Like it's a, it's a academic career path now to be you know, a clinician educator. But I think now people are seeing that even being a clinician administrator is a reasonable career path, like managing healthcare infrastructure, which historically was not something that was really supported. And I think medical entrepreneurship is probably at the very beginnings of becoming accepted, but it's still not. I mean, there's not a lot of room for it, uh, though I do see um, increasing numbers of people, people, increasing numbers of people wanting to do it and a system which is grudgingly accepting it. Um, and, and certainly I suspect that the ecosystem in Canada is probably a little different than the U.S. and other parts of the world. <laughs> also, you mentioned medical education. I want to, I want to ask you that what's your opinion of the future of medical education in simulation or where do you think that field is? Going? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I gotta tell you, although I've spent a lot of my career in digital medical education, you know, sharing knowledge through digital channels. And in the end, we did stuff with online CME, we've done research dissemination, we've done clinical decision support. I, you know, if you ask me what I enjoy the most in terms of teaching, it's still having three students in a room with a blackboard and talking about, you know, a clinical problem. Um, and so. I, I'm not sure we should ever get away from the value of the wisdom that an experienced physician can share with new trainees. You know, medicine, the more I do, the more I realize it's the biggest challenges are decision-making judgment and wisdom. You know, technical skills you'll learn. And yes, I do think simulation is better. I, I really wish I had the chance to learn procedural stuff, um, in a safer environment, um, than what I was yeah. exposed to in my residency. You know, it wasn't, yeah. I don't think it was optimal. Um, but the truth is procedural skill you learn, um, 
you know, medical information, you know, I, I probably knew more medical knowledge when I finished writing my role college exam at the end of my fellowship than I do now. But what I have that I will never lose, I don't think, is the wisdom and the judgment that comes from having, you know, worked too many hours for too many decades. Um, but it's valuable. And I, and I think that the teaching of, I think the question of how we teach judgment is one that has remained unanswered. So I, I don't think medical simulation is the answer. I think it's a great adjunct. I think it's a great tool. Of course we should do that. I think online resources are great. I mean, we shouldn't have to memorize everything. Having a peripheral brain is a no brainer. Of course we should have, you know, other repositories. Um, but how do we teach people to make the right call? How do we teach people to balance what they know about the science and the wishes of the patient in front of them? How do we, you know, teach people to know what to do now because they should be able to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I don't, I don't think that's been addressed. Um, so for now, I think the system of, um, medicine being an apprenticeship where you have trainees who apprentice with more experienced people is great. Um, but I, I suspect there's probably an opportunity to see that grow in some ways. I'm still not fully grasping the idea of, uh, what word did you use here? Oh, it's escaping me right now. Jeffrey, save me here. <laughs> no worries at all. I lost my question. Um, I mean, I think medical education is certainly a fascinating spin, like down or fascinating trip to go down in terms of your experience, but I do want to bring it back to your experience with QXMD and how exactly you approached or what the story was behind the acquisition that it went through. Like, what was your perspective? How would you tell that story? Yeah. So, uh, I guess a couple of years ago now, the company was bought by WebMD. Um, and one of their subsidiaries that I, I know a lot about is Medscape. As I mentioned, I was, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I was one of the first, you know, 10,000 users of Medscape. Uh, I remember logging in very, very early. How did that feel and, though? Like being acquired by Medscape, like the, the, the OG, the, the yeah, original one. No, it was great. I mean, I can tell you when, you know, when we decided it was, you know, maybe the right time to sell the company, we, we spoke to a lot of companies who were interested in, yeah. in, you know, um, doing the acquisition. Um, and in the end, uh, it didn't really come down to deal terms because they were all reasonably similar. Um, Medscape wasn't the best offer, um, you know, from a, you know, maybe a numbers perspective, but, you know, to be a part of something bigger, um, and a company which had a, I think an ethos and a, a mission, which was very aligned, um, was, it was, it was great. Um, you know, I literally have used Medscape, uh, since its inception, I, I believe what they do, I think, you know, it's very aligned with the stuff that I care about in terms of knowledge dissemination. And so it was, um, a great place for the company to land. And when I started, you know, working with the team at Medscape and WebMD, um, it was filled with a bunch of people who cared about a lot of the same things I cared about. So, uh, I think when you build a company and you build products, they're kind of, in some ways, your babies and mm -hmm. you want them to be left in an ecosystem where they're going to be nurtured and supported and grown. And so I think we achieved all those things. Um, so it was, uh, overall, uh, you know, really fantastic process and a fantastic experience. 
Mm -hmm. And I mean, like it's, it's, I've heard many times it's really hard to let go of something that you've helped build, but what triggered that decision to go for an acquisition instead of growing it out and acquiring other companies yourself with QXMD? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think at the time we had achieved a lot of the things we really wanted to achieve. Um, we had, you know, solved a lot of the technical problems. We had solved product market fit to some degree, not, not perfectly, but we had certainly built products that people wanted to buy. Um, we had loyal users, uh, we'd built brand, um, we generate some value. Um, we also had shareholders to think about, um, I think we'd achieved a lot of the stuff that we could achieve on our own. Um, I, you know, wasn't as confident we could get to the next level independently, but was, mm -hmm. you know, quite confident that in the hands of the right acquiring company, um, the company could grow in, in, in a lot of ways, could find synergies, both in, on the commercial side, but also on the product side. And it just, just seemed like the right timing. Yeah. Was it at all hard to give up? Is it giving up? What, what is it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, acquired? uh, it, it was hard. Um, you know, for me, I wouldn't say I'm a micromanager, but I am not really just a big strategy person. I really do sweat the details and I, and I really strongly believe that sweating the details is what, what, what drives success. You can't just hope things will work out. You need to really worry about everything. Um, it doesn't mean you have to do the work and it doesn't mean you can't hire great people to do those details, but you have to sweat it. And I do find that in a big, um, organization, uh, for example, in the organization I was at it, that's Medscape WebMD, um, engineering with this own massive infrastructure and no longer could I just like walk into the, you know, the room with engineers Well, it was COVID. So we didn't walk anywhere, but I couldn't just get on a call with the engineers and be like, Hey, why don't we just fix that? There was like structure, you know, and you know, I, and I'm not saying having organizational infrastructure isn't good in it, but you lose some of the spontaneity, you know, and there were times where we scrambled to build solutions. We may be a little reactive, not proactive, but you know, we were a cohesive team and we're like, Ooh, we missed that. Let's fix that right now. Let's drop everything. But you get into a big organization and things like that get a bit trickier. Now on the flip side, you get huge, uh, resource in terms of skill set and people who know a lot and people have solved the same problem. So you certainly gain a ton. So I don't think it was a net loss, but for me personally, I had to give up this idea that I could still, um, put my finger in every piece of the company when we were now part of such a, a big structure. To put a word on it though, what did you end up losing when you turned corporate? Um, I think you lose your, um, uh, your complete independence. Um, and I, and I will say to some degree, you lose the ability to be a hundred percent product focused. And I will say to, to Medscape Webley's credit, there was never any pressure to sacrifice product or commercial at all. There was never that pressure, but you know, the, in a big organization, the commercial realities are there, you know, um, budget cycles, you know, CapEx expenditures, um, hiring, uh, all, all these things just 
are less straightforward than if you're, you know, a group of 20 people just making decisions on a day by day basis. So, I mean, I think just a, a little bit of a step away from your, I guess, corporate slash startup life that you've now stepped a little away from as the previous CEO of QXMD. I mean, it seems like a lot of your work has been engaged in turn turning like available clinical level data into actionable items. Are you like, oh, what do you see in terms of the future evolution? of that field of shaping the future of medicine. Did that question make sense? I'm not sure if it was like, recursive. I know what you're getting at. I think, you know, when we chatted before, I, I talked a bit about my real interest in how we take yeah. clinical data and apply it to actual practice. And I think, you know, with QXMD, my interest was how do we take research and apply it at the patient level? And I think now one of the real gaps that I see that I don't feel has been addressed is we are creating data about people, the patients at an unprecedented level. And oftentimes that data is digitized in a way which is either usable or, or, or less usable. But despite the advances in technology and despite the advances in digitization and the, despite the advances in having just more data about people, I'm not convinced we're utilizing it to optimize patient outcomes. I mean, I'll give you a simple example. If today you go into a hospital and your platelet count drops and that's in the computer and in another database, we know you've been on heparin and we know there's potentially, you know, the risk that you can get something called heparin induced thrombocytopenia, where you get a very serious complication where your platelet count drops from heparin. I'm not aware of a system which will say, Hey, knock, knock. Uh, did you think this person could have heparin induced thrombocytopenia? Or, you know, somebody uh, gets put on an antibiotic and five days later, their creatinine shoots up, their kidney function drops, and their eosinophils shoot up. There's no computer system to say, hey, did you think this person might be having an allergic reaction to their antibiotic? Um, or even at a population health level, you know, right now where I live, there are many, many people getting, to, and I use the kidney examples because I know them, many people being tested and found to have diabetes. They're found to have protein in their urine. And we also, in where I live, we know every single medication that you take that's prescribed it's in a database. And if you're not on the right medicines for your problem, there is no system to tell the patient they should get looked at. There's no patient to remind the doctor they should look at it. And so I think there is so much low hanging fruit. Um, in your question, you sort of alluded to the fact that I'm trying to solve it. I, I, you know, I'm not working on it currently. It's, I think, you know, my passion and I think it's something I'd like to work on. Um, but it's, uh, it's challenging. And so, um, before I said that, uh, nothing is impossible and I, I really believe that we can do anything we set our minds to, uh, I'm also human. I need a bit of a break. So I'm, I'm taking a year or two to sort of catch my breath, but it's definitely an area I would love to work on. I think it is, um, low hanging fruit and I love low hanging fruit. I don't, I don't want to do hard problems. I want to do, you know, easy problems that maybe there's barriers that just need to be surmounted. That's, that's interesting. So if it is low hanging fruit and you've got this, you know, metaphorical Swiss army knife of a way to use these databases, all this data that is available, why hasn't it been done yet? Like what are the barriers that are in place that have prevented healthcare systems 
North America over that are so data rich from making these changes that make so much sense? It's a great question. Um, I wish I knew the answer. I think if the answer was self-evident, this would have already been solved. I think it's a smattering of problems. I think one is that there is a perception that privacy legislation uh, may pose barriers. I think that perception is wrong. I think it's a, it's a choice to perceive things that way when I think if you ask the average person on the street and they said, Hey, if your doctor could get electronic prompts that would give you better care, would you want that or not? I think people would say yes. Um, and so I think privacy should serve patients, not pose, pose barriers. So I, I, I don't think that's a, a real problem, but I think it's a perceived problem, which scares people. I think that there is probably a, not enough like digital product people in the healthcare ecosystem that understand the healthcare problems. I don't think there's enough people who know both. What are the clinical problems we're trying to solve and what can you do with digital information? That, that Venn diagram, the overlap is I think too small. And so we just don't have enough people seeing these things, what they are, which is pretty solvable solutions. Um, I think there's also the emotional slash political efforts that are required. It takes a lot of heart to tackle these problems because there's so many barriers and you get so many no's and, you know, having been involved in sales, I'm very good at getting a no, like uh, it doesn't, doesn't make me cry. Um, there's nothing you can say to hurt my feelings. Uh, but if you're not used to getting those, and I think doctors quite frankly, are not used to getting a no, you know, you yeah. write an order in a chart and says patient needs a bolus of fluids, the, the fluid gets given. Um, I think that, uh, in order to solve a problem like this, you'd have to have a lot of people say no, a lot of times before you would make progress. And there's also the data siloing, you know, um, the data that you need often sits in different repositories. It's controlled by different people. Those people have different priority. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it hasn't been solved. Um, but I think it's worth solving, um, because we spend a lot of money on creating all this data, storing all this data. Uh, I think we should let patients drive the benefit of that data and presumably reduce costs by doing so. Mm -hmm. So here's a moonshot question or related to a moonshot. Like, would, do you think that this first step of going for the low hanging fruit of responding to, you know, lab results that may indicate heparin induced thrombocytopenia, is that a first step towards the, the, the catchphrase personalized medicine? Or are those two entirely different paths? I think it's absolutely along the path. I think a lot of people think they're going to do personalized medicine. You have to build complex AI systems. You know, I look at, um, DeepMind that was trying to develop. And again, I always use kidney examples because I know, I know it well, but they were trying to, you know, create a, um, a model or a, or a machine learning model that would predict who was going to go into kidney failure in the hospital. Um, and it, I don't think it's had. I don't think it's been a resounding success. Um, I, I don't think you need to go so complicated. There's just so many more simple things, like things that are even rule-based. And, and again, I, I'm not here to say that EMR prompts are the answer. So we think, I think we know that a lot of EMRs have caused a lot of burnout and frustration by mm -hmm. making people, um, purposely ignore clicks or ignore prompts because they're not relevant, but I think there are ways of solving that, that don't require, you know, a team of seven machine learning experts that don't require an investment of, you know, $7 million to build an ACE team and an engineering infrastructure. I think you probably can and should start 
with the easy wins to prove, you know, to show some credibility and show that this can be done. And, uh, I think this is one of those things that perhaps we're overthinking and some of the, um, you know, simple solutions should be tried first. Mm -hmm. And I guess with that, uh, that look into the future, I want to take some time to close off. So, uh, do, do you know what time it is, Dan? It's, uh, it's almost, uh, I don't know, almost noon. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's time for you to plug your pluggables. Are there any okay. social media tags you want to plug? <laughs> you know, uh, I, um, I, I'm not out to build much of a name. I'm on Twitter. I don't use it a ton. I'll be honest. I I'm more of a lurker than a contributor. Um, I, uh, you know, the only thing I would, I would plug for myself is that I'm, uh, probably a very interested person. And so, you know, if there are people out there, you know, feel free to, to find me, uh, you know, search for me on Twitter, um, send me a direct message. I'm, I'm always really interested in chatting to people about their projects. Uh, I'm not interested in coming on as a team member. I just don't have the time. I'm not interested in, in funding those projects perhaps, but I, I do enjoy, um, sharing, uh, the mistakes I've made. And the learnings I've achieved, uh, and hearing about what people are working on. I mean, it's also selfish. I love hearing about exciting new projects, but thus far I've done a lot of sort of pro bono, uh, advising to lots of new companies, um, uh, or just projects. Uh, and I think I have a lot to contribute. So, um, I find it fun. And if people, um, you know, have something that they've put a lot of work into and a lot of thought into, and they're lucky they got, you know, some, some, some insights, you know, I'm always, I'm always open for a chat. Awesome. And, uh, do, do you mind if I share your Twitter handle, Dan? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, at Dr. D Schwartz MD. That's D R D S C H W E R T Z M D. And you can find how it's med at, at how it's med on LinkedIn and Twitter, as well as at how it's med.com. Abdo, you, you, you just turned on your audio. You got to say something. No, I'm just, I'm just saying my goodbyes. All right. Until next time. <laughs>